Good morning. Basically, everything Tom just told you, I'm going to tell you again. So. <laughs> All right, previously in the book of Acts, that's where we're starting. Look at what we looked at last week. Last week, we saw Peter and John go up to the temple to pray at 3 p.m., as was kind of the norm for people to do. And they go outside this gate that is called Beautiful, and they heal a man who had been lame since birth. And he's out there begging for money because that's where people would give tithes because it was part of the thing that they thought would be good. Um, and then after the time of prayer, people came up to see what had happened and having recognized the beggar that was healed and everything that had gone on. And then he's hanging out with Peter and John. He's leaping and walking around and everything, as I think you would if you haven't done that ever. Um, and then Peter takes that opportunity to preach a sermon, as a good preacher would. And he's telling the people to repent, turn to God, so that their sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing would come from the Lord, and that God would send the Messiah who had been appointed for them, Jesus. And things have been going pretty well for the apostles up to this point. That's about to change. There's some new players coming into the scene now, and they're not quite as receptive to the message that Peter and John are preaching. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today, verses, uh, start with verses 1 and 2. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So we've got three groups that come up to Peter and John while they're speaking. You've got the priests, you've got the captain of the temple guard, I guess not really a group, but a person, but and then you have the Sadducees. So the priests, they're possibly the high priests uh, of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was kind of like the ruling council of the religious leaders of the Israelites. The captain of the temple guard was described in a Bible dictionary that I've got as an officer who is basically like second in authority to the high priest, only to the high priest. And so if something's going on, like there's a ruckus or a crowd is forming around a couple guys who are preaching in the temple, then this guy's going to be there to kind of see what's happening and maybe take some action on it. Then you have the Sadducees. Now, that's kind of the interesting one because the Sadducees, they were, they were described by the Jewish historian Josephus as one of the three main Jewish schools of thought. The other two were the Pharisees and the Essenes. And they tended to be, or at least their supporters, were among like the most wealthy or the highest standing of the people. So they had prestige, they had a reputation, and, and everything. And they were big supporters of the scriptures, the Old Testament at the time. Basically, it was the scriptures are nothing for them. They took priority over everything. So no man-made traditions, no anything like that. It was just, just the scriptures. But they had some interesting things that came out of that, because they didn't believe in angels or spirits. But most importantly, with what we're talking about today, they believed that the soul ceases to exist at death, and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we know this from earlier mentions in the Gospels. For example, Luke 20, verses 27 through 40 talks about that, and that's where they are questioning Jesus about marriage in the afterlife, even though they didn't believe in the afterlife, so they were trying to trip him up. Um, and since Peter and John are preaching pretty boldly about the bodily res resurrection of Jesus, naturally the Sadducees are quite disturbed by this. And the priests would be disturbed too because 
you know, roughly seven weeks or so before this, they knew that Jesus died and they were the ones that sent him to be crucified. So all of this needs some investigation. So we continue in verse 3. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who had heard the message believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. So things have been, like I said, things have been going pretty well for the uh, believers at this point, for the apostles and everything. I mean, you had the day of Pentecost, right, where the Holy Spirit comes down like a roaring wind, and the apostles were filled with the, with the Spirit. And Peter preaches a sermon, and 3,000 people are added to their number that day. That's a pretty good turnout. And then you've got the, the scene of the early Christian community, and they're kind of figuring things out together, and they're coming together to support one another and take care of one another. They're selling possessions and property to give to anybody who has need. And in that passage, it says that they enjoyed the favor of all the people. That didn't quite last, but even still, though, this day that we're talking about, Peter heals this beggar who'd been lame for over 40 years. He draws a crowd to him, and then he's got an opportunity to share the gospel with even more people. But now we start to see the signs, the first signs of persecution, because Peter and John, they're seized, they're arrested by these people, and then they're put into jail overnight. The reason they did it overnight, because it was too late for the Sanhedrin to be brought together for an inquiry or a trial, whatever you want to call it, which is a little different than when they arrested Jesus, right? Because they did that at night, and then they tried him at night, and every overnight and everything. So, uh, But this time they were kind of following the rules and their own rules. But before we go to trial, though, Luke adds that little tidbit in verse 4, where he says, Many who heard the message believed. And that makes sense, right? Because they saw this miraculous healing. It was undeniable to them. And they heard the power and the authority with which Peter was preaching. And their number grew to about 5,000. So they're adding another 2,000 or so people to their number. It's an evangelist dream right there, I think. These people have been waiting on their Messiah, their Savior, their King. It had been the story that they'd heard since they were kids. And Peter and John are like, he was here. He died, but God raised him from the dead. And it's not too late. You can still follow him. And they did. Then Peter and John are put into jail. And now they're going to appear before the Sanhedrin. And we see that in verse 5. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem Annas, the high priest, was there. And so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. So it's the next day. And the Sanhedrin, rulers, elders, teachers of the law, they're meeting in Jerusalem. And we've got a few names here. And two of them might seem a little familiar to you if if you're familiar with the story of the Passion Week. Annas and Caiaphas. Annas is called the high priest here, but he actually wasn't the high priest at the time. He wasn't the acting high priest at the time. That was Caiaphas. He was the high priest a little bit before Caiaphas. He was a high priest a little bit before Caiaphas. And he was Caiaphas' father-in-law. He was appointed around A.D. 6 and removed around 14 to 15. Now, it doesn't mean, though, that he's gone from the proceedings, even though he's been removed as a high priest, because he was involved in Jesus' trial. And he's still involved here because former high priests, they were kind of held in honor and still wielded a little bit of power and authority and influence. 
But then you have Caiaphas, and Caiaphas was the high priest who officially presided over the trial of Jesus. He was high priest from 18 to 36. And just as an interesting, I thought it was an interesting side note, but um, because I like the archaeology around all of this, people believe that we have found the, the ossuary or the bone box of Caiaphas, found his remains in a tomb. Um, it was found in a, a tomb marked as the family of Caiaphas, and on the, the bone box, uh, on the ossuary, it says, uh, it, it's like carved into it, it says, Joseph, son of Caiaphas, which is how Josephus actually referred to Caiaphas. Now, we don't know that for sure, but everything seems to date to the proper time and everything. But the other two who were mentioned, I believe it was John and Alexander, they were most likely other family of Annas. So because the priesthood was a family affair. Now we continue in the story as the elders and the teachers of the law ask Peter and John a question in verse 7. This is one that, that Tom read here. It says, They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Now, I find it interesting. They're not actually questioning that something miraculous happened. They just want to know how it happened. Or more importantly, they're asking, how did you have the power to do this? Or by whose name did you do this? Like You see, the, na- the, the word name is mentioned multiple times in this passage. Like, whose name did you do this under? Like, whose authority? And then Peter answers, And he's got some spirit-empowered boldness here. Verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not like he's being baptized again with the Spirit like we saw at Pentecost. It's more like Peter's kind of being recharged with the Spirit. And I want to remind you of something. Two months before, two months or so before this, this is the same Peter who denied Jesus three times while following him from a distance after Jesus was arrested. Denied him three times and he ended up raining down curses, saying, I don't know him. That's the same Peter. Now, that's, that's not who Peter is anymore. Right? Because he's standing before the ruling class in Jerusalem and he's boldly proclaiming the name of Christ. And it is like the most concise presentation of the gospel or the good news of Jesus that you can get. But man, it's powerful. So let's break it down. The first thing, I think Peter's saying something like, this thing is kind of silly, right? He's like, we're being called to an account today because of an act of kindness that we showed this guy who was lame and healing him. They didn't ask him about the preaching or anything. They're just like, how'd you heal this guy? And Peter continues. He says, well, you want to know how he's healed? Okay, I'll tell you. It was in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you killed, but whom God raised from the dead. That's how this man was healed. 
Now, can you imagine the shock on the faces of, like, Annas and Caiaphas? Because they're probably thinking, wait a second. We killed that guy. Like, we put down that uprising. How is this happening? And Peter uses Jesus' name, title, hometown, so there was no, like, confusing it. He said, his name is Jesus. It's Christ, which is a title. It's the Greek translation for Messiah. It means anointed one. And his hometown was Nazareth. And just in saying this, Peter's proclaiming that this is the same Jesus as before, and he is the long-awaited Messiah. But even if that wasn't clear enough for them, Peter continues. He says, you crucified him, yeah, but God raised him from the dead. Now, that one probably just irked the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then Peter quotes Psalm 118.22, which says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a messianic prophecy and appears two other times in the Old Testament. Isaiah 28, 16 and Zechariah 10, verse 4. The Zechariah reference specifically states that this, that this stone, the cornerstone, is going to come out of the tribe of Judah, which is the tribe that the Messiah would come from. It is the tribe that Jesus came from. And Jesus mentions this prophecy in Matthew 21. Paul mentions it in Ephesians 2, 20. Peter himself talks about it. In 1 Peter 2, 7. The cornerstone is, it's that stone that all the rest of the stones are laid against because they, they, they work it so it's got the right angle and everything. It's straight. And so they lay all the other stones of the foundation against it to make sure that it, they'll be set properly. So the cornerstone is the guide, and that's exactly what Scripture says the Messiah is. He is the the chief cornerstone of our lives. Now, the last thing Peter says is in verse 12, where he says, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's so powerful. Powerful enough that preachers have done entire sermons just on that verse. And there are three things I think people talk about with this verse. First thing is we need salvation. Because we have no hope to be with God for eternity without somebody rescuing us. People naturally don't want to do the things of God, and you see that in the world today. Because of the sinful nature that people are born with. They're separated from God and need something, someone to be able to come in and, and close that gap. But in order to close the gap, we need a Savior. Now, the second thing is that there is only one hope. Peter says salvation is found in no one else. Why is there no other way? It's because Jesus is God. He left heaven to become one of us, living a sinless life and dying for our sins on the cross. No one else could do that. He's our only hope. Jesus said in Luke 19.10 that he came to seek and save the lost. And there is no other name by which people can be saved. In John 14.6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, the third thing is to see that this is for all mankind. It's not just for the Jewish believers, but it's for everyone. It started in Jerusalem, started in Israel, but then it was spread to the entire world. That hope for eternal life. 
Now we turn back to the teachers of the law and the elders to see their response to Peter's bold proclamation. Verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished because, or they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So Peter and John, they were fishermen. That's their trade. It's what they were trained for. And it's what Jesus called them out of when he told them to follow him. They didn't have the formal training. They didn't go to school for this. They were considered uneducated because they're workers. They're they're blue-collar people. And yet here they are in front of the Sanhedrin. And they're showing so much courage and boldness. And the reaction from the elders and the teachers of the law were, they were astonished at this. They're like, who are these guys? They're fishermen from Galilee, way up north. And then it says they took note that these men had been with Jesus. You know, I've I've got a master's degree, right? It took me four years, 88 credit credit hours. It was way too long, but I did it. But it was to learn how to do what I'm doing, right? And it was a good thing for me to do. But one thing I really want to do is I, I just want... I want people to be able to look at me when they come into contact with me and say the same thing that Sanhedrin said about Peter and John, that they knew that I've been with Jesus. Schoolwork's worthwhile, but it's not the most important thing. Let's continue in verse 14. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Now, you would think their first response would be to cry blasphemy. That's what they did with Jesus. That's really what they they crucified him for, is blasphemy, because he said he was God. And these guys are saying that Jesus is God. But they had a small problem there. There was a guy that was hanging around who had just been healed. So many people had witnessed this healing and knew this man as one of the beggars who would stand outside the beautiful gate. Not stand. He would sit. He couldn't stand until after he was healed. So how would it look if the Sanhedrin went after these two men who healed this man who had been lame? It might get a revolt from the people. You never know. So they're kind of handcuffed with it. There's not a whole lot that they can do, but they still had to try to do something to stop them. And so they made a decision to warn Peter and John. They call them back in. So in verse 18, then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And the boldness has not stopped here. The Sanhedrin saying, don't do this anymore. Peter and John are like, no. And what they bring up is a good point. They're like, look, if, which would be right in God's eyes? If you're telling us what to do, but he's told us to do something different, which would be right. You be the judges for that. But for us, we can't help it because of what we've seen, what we've heard, what we've witnessed. 
We can't help it. You know, when you see somebody come back from the dead, you're going to talk about it. And it's not going to matter what anybody else tells you to do. They were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection, so nothing's going to stop them from telling people about the good news of his return. And now the Sanhedrin's like, ah, we don't really know what to do with him. So verse 21, it says, after further threats, they let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. In verse 22, the word miraculously, it's often translated as sign. It was a sign. That's, it was a sign of the healing from the Lord for the people at the temple. It's also a sign for the Sanhedrin. And the man's age makes it hard to deny. And one final thing I, I find interesting. Peter basically preached three times that we've looked at, right? We've talked about him. And each of the first few times that he preaches, there's a note following it of the number of people who started to follow Jesus, who joined their number. 3,000 on Pentecost, 2,000 at Solomon's uh, colonnade. But here there's, there's not a mention of anybody who follows. And I think that's important to note because this is the first time in the book of Acts that the message has been rejected. Jesus remains the stone that the builders rejected. Now, we're going to see as we continue in this series, things getting increasingly difficult for the apostles and the other followers of Jesus. Next week, though, we're going to look at how the believers react, reacted after Peter and John returned, how they reacted to their arrest and their trial. But as we finish up today, we need to look at how we can apply what we've read in our, to our lives. Reading the Bible, getting the information, that's all good, but you got to transfer what you read and make it application for your own personal life. That's what's important. That's what's life-changing. So I've got a few things. The first one is that, you know, we've got to understand that as followers of Jesus, there are going to be times where we're going to face trials. Jesus told his disciples in John 15 that the world hates them just as it did him. And it's because they don't belong to the world. And I think that's still true today. We don't belong to this world, but we belong to Christ. And as he says in John 15, 20, remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. So if Jesus was persecuted, why would we feel that we wouldn't be? And so we will probably face trials, especially as this world gets more and more away from biblical literacy and even just hearing the teachings of Jesus. People don't know them anymore. Now the second thing is we've got to be bold in the face of those trials. In the name of Jesus. There's only one way for anyone to be saved. And that is through Jesus Christ. And we should want everyone to come to repentance in him. Even those who are persecuting us. Jesus himself said, love your enemies. And we have the greatest message in the world. And so let's share that message at every opportunity we have. Peter and John said... 
you can tell us not to preach in Jesus' name, we're still going to do it because it was what God commanded and it's what we witnessed. So we can't help it. And so let that be us. We just can't help it to proclaim the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There may come a time where somewhere that Christianity is illegal. I'm not sure it'll happen in this country in our lifetimes, but it could. You never know. But there are a whole lot of countries right now, mainly in like Southern Asia and Africa, where Christianity is very illegal. And people are persecuted. 5,000 people last year were killed for their faith. According to Open Doors, which is an organization that tracks these things, there's 50 countries on their list where there are high, very high, or extreme levels of persecution for Christians. But do you know where the gospel spreads quickest sometimes? It's in those very countries. Because it's real for them. Now, the last application is really more of a question for you. When people come away from you, when you've had interactions with people, do they take note that you've been with Jesus? Would they know any different? Do you look just like the rest of the world, or is there something that makes you stand out? Would people, do people, see Jesus in you? My hope is that Whenever they interact with you and me, that's what they see. Even if they think we're crazy, that's what they see. The great preacher from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, once said, Oh, my brethren, it were well if this commendation, so forced from the lips of enemies, could also be compelled by our own example. If we could live like Peter and John, if our lives were living epistles of God, known and read of all men, if whenever we were seen, men would take knowledge of us that we had been with Jesus, it would be a happy thing for this world and a blessed thing for us. Facing trials with boldness, that can be intimidating for some. For some of you, it's just like second nature. You're just like, yeah, this is fine. Let's go. You don't have a problem with it. For some of us, it's a little tougher. But we always need to remember that Jesus has promised to be with us to the very end of the age. And his Holy Spirit is going to be there to fill us like it did Peter and to give us the right things to say. It doesn't mean that we don't prepare, but it means that he will give us the things to say. And we do so to the best of our ability for the glory of God. Education doesn't really matter. You know, you don't have to go to a Bible school to do this. To talk to people. It's a conversation. Talk to people about your faith. Dwight L. Moody, he was a preacher up in Chicago who founded the school that I got my degree from. And there was a time when somebody came up to him I think after a sermon, I maybe wrote him and, and very critical of his grammar and reprimanded him for it. Because that's always what's most important for a preacher is their grammar. And I'm so thankful that none of you have ever come up and been like, Nick, your grammar stinks. I'm like, I know. <laughs> Moody replied to him, and here's how he replied. He said, my dear fellow, I wish my grammar were better. <laughs> 
I wish I had a better education. But I'm using all the grammar I have for the glory of God. Are you doing as much with yours? Are you doing as much with yours? Whatever we do, we do everything for the glory of God. And hopefully, people will take note. Just like the Sanhedrin did with Peter and John. Hopefully, people will take note that you have been with Jesus. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this passage. Thank you for Peter and just the change in him. And, and we see you know, these are uneducated men. They didn't go through the training that the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and all of them did, the religious training. But they spoke with boldness and power in the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would enable us to be able to do the very same thing. When trials come, when persecution comes, that we still would speak boldly in the name of Jesus. And even when those trials don't come, even when it's just a normal day, help us to continue to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. Because you said in your scripture, Lord, that you don't want anybody to perish. You want all to turn to you in repentance. And you've allowed us to be able to share your message, to tell people about you. And we are so thankful for that privilege, but help us, Lord, to do that. And to do it for your glory. Help us to be seen as people who have been with you. We're so thankful, Lord. Father, we come to the time in our service where we come around the table of communion to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. We take the bread representing his body that was broken. Take the juice that represents the blood that was spilled, but it is also the cup of the new covenant one day we know that we will take it in his presence when he returns. We look forward to that day, Lord. But until that day, help us to just exude the confidence that Peter and John had, the boldness to live our lives for you to do everything for your glory. Thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.